um, introductions. So there are three introductions, um, and I'm going to go through them relatively quickly. Number one, we're going to be focusing on ideas of Hasidus that relate to the time of the year, like I said. Hasidus is messy. Um, it is not very easy to pin down exactly what Hasidus is, and I'm not going to do that. If those of you who God willing stay on and are here after the Sukkot break, when we, I will be teaching at this time Slat Tanya, and the beginning of every semester I do give introductions to what Hasidus is at length. For our purposes right now, what's important to realize is that Hasidus is a very deep part of Torah. What do I mean by deep part of Torah? I don't mean you have to be very smart, um, although being smart can help. What I mean is that it challenges a person to relate to Judaism on a level which goes beyond the everyday. You know, the everyday notion of Judaism is there's God who created the world. We're part of the world he created. And for whatever reason, he made a covenant with the Jewish people that involves the giving of the Torah and the keeping of the mitzvahs. And that's basically it. And, and what does that mean and what is that all about? Hasidus, and we, this is kind of an oversimplification, Hasidus really says the fact that God creates the world is neither here nor there. It's not like, that's not a thing. I mean, it, it happened. Um, God and the Jewish people have a very deep, intimate bond and it plays out in our lives in the world. But God as the creator of the world is really just a veneer for some deeper connection. And so we kind of, although we're in the world and God is the creator of the world, our relationship has to transcend and go deeper than that. Um, which involves a redefining of ourselves. We're not creatures of this world. We're not creatures of creation. Um, it means redefining God. Um, and, and so you end up having a much deeper kind of connection. And it's also more challenging because of that as well. Um, to make a very simple analogy, my relationship with you is and will always remain professional, right? I come here as a teacher. And even if you contact me after you leave here or some other way, right, there's this veil of I'm a teacher and I'm teaching, right? My relationship with my wife, my children, my friends doesn't have that veil, right? There's still a form to it. There's still a way I relate to them. But the level of intimacy and exposure is entirely different. It's categorically different. And the idea is that rather than having a so to speak professional relationship with God, he is the creator, we are his creation, that we're trying to be in touch with something deeper, something that transcends and, 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 and goes beyond the whole idea that God creates the world and we live in this world, okay? And you're gonna see this play out is that when, we, when we're gonna talk about the ideas in, in, in these next classes, over the, ne the next six classes, we're going to be talking about God in a way that maybe is unfamiliar um, because we're not going to be, again, talking about, oh, God's the creator and I live in the world and, and, and think everything in terms of, of the life in which we're used to living. Okay. And by the way, even if a person's learned Hasidus for years and decades, this, this conflict still exists because we're naturally predisposed to living human lives in the world. And so Hasidus is challenging that and making us grapple with some higher truth. So that's number one. Number two. Um, this class is not going to be practical. I'm going to say that from the outset. In other words, I'm going to try and explain ideas, ideas which are meaningful ideas which are true, ideas which are maybe emotionally impactful, but I'm not going to be telling you what to do. Um, I will endeavor at the end of every class, or the end of every topic, so we'll get to the second every class, and the topic, to try and give a practical suggestion of how to 
um, tap into this or relate to this, it's a suggestion. It may work for you, it may not work for you, there's no obligation to take it. It's just a suggestion so you don't leave empty-handed. But my real goal is, based on a, a, a teaching that the famous Hasidic Rebbe, the Kotzke Rebbe said, that in the, in the Shema, that we recite, and um, we discuss our uh, commitment to Hashem, to God, it says that God tells us that we're supposed to place these words on our heart. And he asks the question, why not in our heart? Why not on our heart? And he says, because the heart is not always open. But if you put it on the heart, eventually a person has a moment of vulnerability, reaches a state of maturity, and the heart opens up, and those words, those truths, can it be absorbed. And so I'm not so much, although Mrs. Gestatner would not be happy to hear this, trying to inspire you for this coming El and this coming Tishrei Noshashana. I'm more trying to give you perspective about these things in general. Um, and it's an introduction, it's a beginning. And as much as it sinks in this year, it sinks in this year. And as much as it sinks in next year or in 10 years. Um, but that's kind of the idea, is that there's, there's, there's perspective that each person, when their mind and heart are sufficiently open, these things can be absorbed more or less each person on their level. Okay. Um, but because I don't want you to leave completely up-to-handed, I will try to give a, a practical, and again, it's a suggestion, something small, take it or leave it. Okay. The last thing, and this is the most important thing, and I want to emphasize this is the most important thing. Nothing I am saying is really the justification for the mitzvahs that we do. In other words, come Rosh Hashanah, there's a mitzvah to blow the shofar. Um, come Yom Kippur, there's a mitzvah to fast. It's, an, it's a very important obligation to fast. Um, there's the, the text of the prayers that we say. There's the sitting in the sukkah. There's the shaking of the lulav. And in general, the mitzvahs we do. When Hasidus explains the spiritual meaning of these mitzvahs, Hasidus is not really justifying why we do these things. What Hasidus is showing is how these mitzvahs play a role in the Hasidic life, in the Hasidic relationship with God. But the true importance of these mitzvahs transcends any explanation that we can understand. And therefore, our commitment to doing them and the value that we place in them should never be reduced to something that is in a, something that can be discussed and explained, whether it's a kind of practical benefit or even a kind of a spiritual thing like we're gonna talk about in these classes. So it's very important that you don't come away with a sense of, oh, that's why we blow shofar. Oh, that's why we shake the lulav. But rather, that is how blowing the shofar, blowing the lulav plays a role in this facet of relating to God. But even if I don't resonate with it, even if, even if nothing about shofar or the lulav or fasting on Yom Kippur, whatever these things are, resonates with me. It's important that Judaism teaches that the true importance of these things is something that only God really knows. And that's why they're viewed as God-given commandments. Even those things which are pretty obvious, like not stealing, the reason why they're God-given commandments is because the true importance of not stealing goes beyond what a human being can fathom. If it's just something that a human being can appreciate, we don't really need God to command it. We could you know, wait for the wise people amongst the human race to come up with it. But for something to have truly divine and infinite value beyond our, our, our ability to comprehend, that can only be conveyed to us by God. So the last and most important introduction is nothing here is really meant to be a justification or a reasoning for the mitzvah, but is meant to help see how we, these mitzvahs and these practices play a role in this facet of relating to God. Okay, the curriculum is going to be, today we're going to talk about Elul, the month of Elul which we are currently in. The next two classes will be devoted to Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah gets two classes. 
The class after that will be devoted to the 10 days of tshuva, 10 days of repentance, which start on Rosh Hashanah and end on Yom Kippur. Then we will have a class on Yom Kippur. And finally, the last class will be a class devoted to talk about sukkahs. And that gives us six classes. Um, and then the Wednesdays are going to be questions and answers, which I'll talk about questions and answers tomorrow, what exactly we're doing there. But think of questions. Kind of self-explanatory. Good. Any questions, comments, objections um, on what, what the introductions before we get to the actual main topic? Okay. So Elul is the name of the month that we are currently in. It is the seventh month of the Jewish year. Sorry, the sixth month of the Jewish year, my mistake. Um, and it is the month that precedes the month of Tishrei. Tishrei is the month where all of the high holidays are. The, the new year starts in Tishrei. Don't ask why the Jewish new year starts the seventh month. It's a weird thing, um, but it does. And we have a lot of holidays. We have no holidays, really, in the month of Elul. Um, Hasidim like to make up holidays. It's a thing Hasidim do. You can ask me about it later. And so Hasidim have some holidays in Elul, but like basic Judaism doesn't have any holidays in Elul. Okay. And so you have this contrast between a month of no holidays preceding a month with a lot of holidays. And the basic way it's understood, whether we're talking with the lens of Hasidus or not, is that the month of El is in some sense a preparatory month to prepare for the holidays of Tishrei. And that's what we're going to try to understand. How does Hasidus look at what El is about and how we prepare for the high holidays in the month of Tishrei during the month of Elul. Um, and we are not going to cover remotely everything. We're going to focus on basically one key idea, flesh that out, and that will be, but just know that there's more aspects than what I'm gonna cover. Now, the Hebrew month Elul can also be read as an acronym where each letter stands for a word. So the way you spell L is Aleph. Does anyone know? Can you write this on the board? These markers right there. Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed. Okay. That's the month of L. That's the, that's the Vav, Lamed. Okay. So that would be an acronym for four words. And there is a verse in the Song of Songs, which is a love poem between Hashem and Jewish people, that reads, Ani Ladoidi, Ani L'doidi means I am to my beloved. So that'll be the Aleph and Lamed. V'doidi li, my beloved is to me. And the idea is that El is a time where we are trying to approach Hashem. Hashem is our beloved. So Ani L'doidi, I am to my beloved. I am reaching out to Hashem, to God who's my beloved. And then, and as a result of that, Doidi li, v'doidi li, and my beloved will reach out to me, he'll reciprocate. So the idea basically is that El is the time where we begin this process where we reach out to God of our own initiative and God reciprocates by reaching back to us. And that idea of reciprocation is basically understood as what's happening in the month of Tishrei. That's why we have all these holidays which are given to us by God. Okay. Now, to help understand this a little bit better, it's important to know that there is a corresponding verse um, in, in the Song of Songs, in Shir Shim, which says, My beloved is to me and I am to him, where the order is reversed. Okay. 
And that is traditionally understood associated with the festival of Pesach, Passover, the Exodus. So we're going to have a small discussion about Pesach. Pesach, Passover, is the time we get out of Egypt and we become God's people. So I will ask you a question. How does one get out of Egypt? How did the Jews get out of Egypt historically? How do we get out of our personal Egypt? Does anyone know the answer to that? How do we do that? Well, you had the first one right, which is that you, I said, how do we do it? And you actually said what God did, what Moshe did, what Aaron did. The people actually didn't do anything. They were taken out of Egypt. And the same idea is that any problem you can get yourself out of is not Egypt. Egypt are the problems that God needs to take you out of. So what happens is the idea of Pesach, the Passover, is that God comes to the people and says, I, you are stuck. And I will, I will get you out of this. And, and the, what Hasidus understands is that the primary Egypt, the primary idea of being stuck is we're stuck in this idea that we're part of the world, that God's the creator of the world, and we, we are cut off from this deeper intimate bond that we have due to our soul. And God needs to come and rescue us. And when God rescues us, then we're able to... We're able to relate to God as Jews who are in touch with their soul and connect to God in this profound and intimate way. And that's the idea that God takes out of Egypt and then we can face God face to face at Mount Sinai. Now the reason why I'm bringing this up is because that, that's not what's happening in Elul. In Elul, the idea is that I am going to approach God. I am going to get out of my own mess. God is not going to do it for me. And me getting out of my own rest, me getting out of my own problems, is going to th- be the thing that sets the stage for the closeness, the revelation of God reaching out to us and God connecting to us in the month of Tisha. Okay. So now what does that mean practically? Remember why I said that this is not a practical class? Okay, so whenever I say practically, it's not that practical. Okay. <laughs> what it means is like this. Obviously, in, we're not waiting for God to miraculously remove all of our problems when we celebrate Pesach. And obviously, we need God's help when we're trying to grow and, and deal with things in Elul. What it means is, there are two very different ways we can relate to things. One way is that we can be willing to accept help, willing to follow, acknowledge our own weakness and our own vulnerability, which I'm not going to elaborate on because that's really Pesach. And then there's something else entirely, which our attitude can be one of taking responsibility. Now, When you're taking responsibility, it's not just a behavioral thing. It's a kind of an attitude thing. 
Um, so let's use an example of taking responsibility, then I'll let you ask a question. Yeah. What would be an example of taking responsibility? So this is, this is an example that I like, um, particularly because it's challenging. There were a bunch of yeshiva students, I believe in Montreal, who wanted to travel to New York for a friend's wedding. Okay, so these Bachrim, Bachrim yeshiva students, they did not ask permission. They just went and rented a van and drove down to New York. <laughs> and there was an accident, and Baruch Hashem, no one was seriously hurt, but um, a few ended up in the hospital, minor you know, scrapes and bruises, and the, the car, rental car had uh, you know, was flipped over. It was, it, was a, it was a thing. And the Rosh Hashiva, the head of the yeshiva, was livid. He was furious, and he storms into the, uh, the staff room, and he's like, who gave these Bachram permission? Who, who, who do they think they are? Or do they go that permission? Did someone give them permission? Don't give them permission. Who do they think they are? And their teacher, the one who was actually taught this group of Bachram, he said, I gave them permission. They asked me and I gave them permission. Now, they didn't ask him and he didn't give them permission. So why did he do that? Why did he say that? He felt responsible. Right. They're his students. If they, in other words, and if they didn't ask him for permission, whose fault is that? That's his fault. What kind of what kind of educator am I if they didn't like so then as far as the in other words, as far as the administration is concerned, it's my fault. That's his point. It's not there, it's my fault. I'm the one who has to take the blame here. Right? And even to them, the fact that they did not feel the sense of personal response to ask him or they didn't feel comfortable asking, whatever the case might be, that also is his fault as an educator. Right? It's a, it, the, the notion of responsibility is that it is really on me. Okay? And in that sense, it's really the opposite of, of leaving Egypt. Okay, um, you wanted to ask something. Yeah, I was going to say, like, the first thing is really- No, like that, that, no, no. So this is, one of the things that you'll notice in my classes is that I'm gonna be kind of nitpicky about words, not because I really that care much about words, I really don't, um, but because when we're sloppy with words, we become sloppy with our ideas. In some sense, anytime you're doing things the right way, there's an element of taking responsibility. And sometimes anytime you're honest with yourself, there's an element of being vulnerable. And yet there's a very big difference between the story that I've said, right? And let's use it in a, a contrasting story that would be like a, a, a leaving Egypt story. A leaving Egypt story um, would be... Uh, um, So, there's a, a man who, who came to the rabbi and um, he started to, to tell the rabbi that he's having marital problems because there's a lot of kids and work and distress um, and you know, his religious commitments. And, and he just feels like he, he keeps hitting his head against the wall. And the rabbi tells him, sits with him and says, look, this, you don't need to, this you can drop. You don't need to like, you, 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 this commitment is, is secondary. This thing is more important. He starts giving him advice of how to start dealing with things and lessening the load. 
and showing him where, and showing him where how how to build a small sense of success that then can give him the optimism to deal with other things, right? That's something he couldn't do for himself. He was trapped, right? So, is there an element of taking responsibility when to ask for help? Sure, right? Is there an element of vulnerability in, in, in realizing that you have failed to some degree as an educator? Sure. But if you look at kind of the core thing, where are you coming from? Are you coming from saying, this is entirely on me? I carry this burden? Or are you saying, I can't carry this burden? God needs to carry this burden. And there's times for one, there's times for the other. Yes, and everything and everything that once we, once we move past the tangible, physical stuff, everything is going to have that quality. So we need to be very precise that, yes, in real life, anything manifests and needs to incorporate many elements. But at the core essence, they're, they're actually quite opposite. So now, okay, well, what am I taking responsibility for? And again, this is a Hasidist class, right? I mean, I could take responsibility for the fact that, you know, I don't keep kosher, which I guess I should fix that, right? I do keep kosher, by the way. Um, I'll tell you a story. Okay? Not all the time do I get to keep kosher. It happens from time to time. Um, what does it mean to keep kosher? Keep kosher doesn't mean that you eat kosher food. Keep kosher means that you make a conscious decision to eat kosher food. Now, because I live in a very ultra-relaxed community, my house is a kosher house, I'm habituated keeping co- to eating kosher. I, I generally am not keeping kosher, just I'm living my life and it's completely oblivious to it. Um, one of the mitzvahs in kosher food is the mitzvah of challah which is that when you make dough amount of a certain amount, um, you have to separate some of it. Um, and ideally, we'd give it to a coin, to a priest, but because we're impure nowadays, so we, we just burn it. And until you tie that dough, the dough is forbidden to eat. It's considered worse than eating pork. Okay. It's, it's, it's almost analogous to eating onion kipper. It's very, very serious. So I like to bake bread, um, and I, I try to make fresh bread for my kids in the morning, so I made... Uh, um, I made a big batch of dough because we we're going to have a family over some pizza and I make some uh, garlic bread sticks and whatever and uh, I, I forgot to ask my wife to take the challah because it's ideally a woman should do it it's a special thing for a woman to do mitzvah. and I made the garlic bread sticks for my kids they went off to school and then I remembered that I forgot to separate the tithe, the challah which means that I just sent them all with non-kosher food and now they're all in school <laughs> That's every time you make the Once you make a certain amount, if it's a certain amount. Yeah. So what does it mean I keep kosher? I immediately called the rabbi. I'm a rabbi. There's some kinds of rabbis. I, I know the laws, but I don't like making the decision. It's like, you know, you don't want someone making a, doing surgery unless they're a surgeon, even if they've studied medicine. So I called him and I explained the situation. He said, right away, rush home and you can tithe from the remaining dough. And he gave me a thing about it. But, and it was like, no, no, this is like, I have to take care of this right now. So. Yeah, it could be that we take responsibility for like ensuring that the food is kosher, right? Again, that's something I do every day because my life is built around kosher just to give it, but sometimes it happens. It could be Shabbos. It could be treating other people nicely. And Hasidus says, of course, all those things. That's a given. Of course, we have to take responsibility for all those things. But we have to take responsibility for something else. Right? We have to take responsibility for the fact that our relationship with God is not the core of our life. Not about a particular observance per se, 
But at the core of my life, there's room for God. I, I may observe his commandments. I keep, I keep kosher. I really keep kosher. I do everything right. I, I, I take it all very seriously. But at the core, what my life is about is not my connection with God. And certainly my connection with God that transcends this physical existence. It's about, you know, getting along, having a, having a quality life. And there's a place, there's room for religious observance there. You know, a person needs to like have hobbies, right? So I like to bake bread. Some people like to do Judaism, right? Everyone has their hobby. But to take responsibility, not just for our lacking in observance, but to take responsibility for the fact that our relationship with God is not the most important thing and arguably the only meaningful thing in our life. Now that's a very big demand. So when Hasidim wanted to describe this, they, they used a, an analogy. Um, there, are, there are many kind of Hasidic stories. Um, one kind of a Hasidic story is the genre of true stories which never happened. Okay, that's my favorite kind. True stories which never happened um, are true. There's one tiny problem is that they never happened, but that doesn't make them less true. By the way, there are plenty of things that happen that aren't true. What do I mean by true? One plus one equals two, that's true, right? Most will say that's true. If I come back tomorrow, is it still gonna be two? Can anything happen to change that? There's something absolute about it, right? Okay. It happened to be that I ate cottage cheese for breakfast today. It happened to be that way. And had I eaten eggs, would it have been like different? Would it have mattered? Arguably, probably not. And, you know, is there anything important 10 years from now that I'm gonna go back and say, oh yeah, yeah, the, the, the 12th of El, I once ate cottage, like, there's, no, there's, no, there's nothing absolute in that. It's a thing, it happened. The reality, it is, a, it is an accurate description of what occurred, but there's no truth in it. Now, there are things which are true, they just never physically took place. The way, the way we present them, we talk about them. So I'll explain to you, we'll give the story. So the story is that there were a bunch of Rus- Russian soldiers, Hasidus, um, Chabad Hasidus originally from Russia, a lot of stories about Russia. Um, bunch of Russian soldiers, and they decide to sneak out of the barracks one night and go to the local tavern and get drunk. And they did so. Right? They made a decision, and they went and fulfilled it. Right? Um, and they realized that they better get back before roll call in the morning, and so they start heading back. But unfortunately, they were so inebriated that none of them made it back, and the commanding officers found them the next morning all passed out at various points on the road between the tavern and the military encampment. So they lined up all the soldiers and they said, all of you really are deserving of punishment. But we understand it's the first time, right? After all, getting drunk is an absolute necessity in life if you live in Tsarist Russia. So we're gonna be forgiving and you are all going to be exempt from punishment except for you three soldiers. You, we're gonna shoot you. You're being executed. And they were obviously very disturbed, the three. Right? What, what are you going to execute me for? And so the commanding officers, they said, well, when we found all of the soldiers passed out, they, all of them were passed out facing the military camp. They're all trying to get back. But because they were passed out, they, uh, they couldn't make it. You three were found facing the tavern, meaning everyone else is trying to get back. Everyone else is facing. Everyone else is... Dr- they know where they belong. They know what it's about. But uh, it's hard because they're drunk. You three, you don't even have a sense that you're supposed to be soldiers. 
You like there's a fundamental at your core rebellion against the czar that came out because everyone's trying to get back and you're not interested in getting back. Now, did that ever happen? I have no idea if it ever happened. It doesn't matter if it happened, but it reflects something very, very true, which is what's called in Hasidus panim, one's face, or panimis, the inner part. What are you facing? What are you driven towards? What, what is your life about? And so Hasidus says, El is the time to take responsibility that my life is not about the intimate connection to God, the God who transcends anything in this created world. And that the most important thing to me as a Jew who was given a special soul to connect to God is that relationship. And that's not what my life looks like. And it's my responsibility to fix that. Now, that's a lot of pressure, yes? Okay. Now, I want to emphasize, does, does fixing that entail also fixing lacking in observance? For instance, if I wasn't keeping kosher, if I wasn't keeping Shabbos, I would have to go along with that as well. But it just means that those things aren't sufficient. Right? So someone who, someone who takes what Hasidus says seriously, and they look, okay, you know what? Maybe I wasn't careful with this. Maybe this needs to be fixed. Maybe that needs to be fixed. I need it. And I, I, but then there's a sense, and, and even though I'm doing that, and I'm, being, I, I, I'm doing it in a way that's, 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 that's real, and I'm making progress, and I'm changing my, 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 my behavior and my habits, all of those things... But I may change, have I taken responsibility that my, my starting point and my end point, the thread that, that runs through my life is not God but something else? Am I taking responsibility for that? Am I taking responsibility for that? That I'm not driven to want to just be close to God. And that that's, it's from that place I have a job. It's from that place I raise a family. It's from that place I'm careful with the observance of the mitzvahs. Because otherwise what I have is something called chitzonis, or just the superficial element, the outside element. To, to give you a, a concrete example of this idea, um, the basic building block of society, Judaism teaches us, is a marriage. Husband and a wife. And a marriage has two elements. What are the two elements of a marriage? The outside and the inside. The outside of the marriage is that the rest of society sees that couple as a single unit. Sometimes they interact with the wife, sometimes they interact with the husband, sometimes they interact with both. But like, there's a, they, are a, they are a single entity. They're a single unit. Now, does that always true? Is that some, or sometimes, you know, the husband and wife are at odds, they're not on the same page, they don't present a united front, not to their children, not to the society around them. Yeah, that can happen. And there's cracks in the external layer. But you could have a situation where you can present a united front and the emphasis in the word is present and yet inside the husband and wife, they don't really feel like they have a unified life. They don't really feel like they're really in it together. They don't really feel like this is their other half. They feel like, technically, okay, like I'm raising a family with this person, I'm in part, we're in a society, we need it. it and, and so between them, it becomes very technical. And it's possible a person to do tshuva and repent and fulfill all the commandments and yet not have that panemius, that inner layer. And from the Hasidic perspective, El is a time to take responsibility for that part of me. 
that that part of me that's gone missing, that's lacking. And the degree to which I take responsibility for that, right? And taking responsibility doesn't mean just like in attitude, it means I actually, that attitude makes changes in how I approach and how I live my life. The degree to which that's the case is the degree to which I'm genuinely reaching out to God and I'm preparing myself to take full advantage of God reciprocating in the month of Tishrei, which we'll talk about in the next five classes. Good? Does this make sense? Are there questions? Because we're going to have a turning point in a moment. I mean, we still have a lot more time, right? We're not finished. This is stage one. So if anyone has questions, now is the time to ask. Anything isn't clear, anything... Okay. It says in the Kabbalistic works that El is a time where God reveals himself to the Jewish people. Now, in Kabbalah, there is a general rule that when God reveals himself, we have a holiday. That's the rule. So God reveals himself and takes us out of Egypt, we have Pesach. God reveals himself and gives us the Torah, we have the festival of Shavuos. God reveals himself in a very special way um, by sharing with us the delight he has in creating the world. And then we have Shabbos. Okay? Sukkot I'll talk about later because we're going to have a class on that. So if God is revealing himself in some way, we should have a holiday. And specifically, what is God revealing about himself to us on, in the, during the month of Elul? He's revealing his limitless and infinite compassion for us. Which is the same thing he reveals on Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur is a very special holiday, right? We eat from eating, etc. So one would expect that the month of Elul would be one giant holiday. And in fact, as we started this topic, there's no holidays in Elul. So there is something Kabbalistically anomalous with the month of Elul, which is that God is revealing this great, great compassion to us, and there's no holiday. So in order to explain that idea, this is going to all tie back eventually to the idea of taking responsibility. Okay. The Alter Rebbe, Alter Rebbe means the old rabbi. Sounds better in Yiddish, right? Alter Rebbe. So Alter Rebbe, who is the founder of the Chabad branch of the Hasidic movement, um, his picture is up there on the top left, he, in one of his classic Hasidic discourses, gives an analogy to explain this idea. And the analogy is that there was a king who's traveling to the city. And before he gets to the city, he's in the field. And in the field, everyone can go out, everyone has permission and everyone has the ability to greet the king. And when they come to greet the king, the king receives everybody warmly, shows them a warm, smiling um, countenance of appreciation. But once he enters the city, now you, not everybody can go to the king. You need to have an appointment. You need to be a special, dignified person, right? Not, not even, it's not enough, you can't just schedule an appointment if you want, right? You have to be the kind of important person that the king would have an audience with to begin with. And even then, you need special permission. And so the king becomes more exclusive. But when the king is in the field and is available, the king is actually not revealing himself. 
in the traditional sense. I'm going to explain to you what I mean. When we say in Hasidus that something is being revealed, that means it's presenting what it actually is like. So I'll give you an example, right? Um, you've all been in a good mood before? Okay. Can other people tell you're in a good mood? Yeah? Okay. So you are, your good mood is revealed. If other people can tell, right? They can pick up on it. They can feel it, right? Okay. Now, what if you're having a really great day? You're just having an amazing day. But you happen to be a judge in criminal court. And you have criminal cases, a murder, a theft, right? And you're, 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 you're just going to sit in trial, right? Now, if you're just exuding this fact that you're having a wonderful day, this is not going to work well, right? You can understand why they did that. So what do you have to do? You have to have a miserable day? Like, what, what do you do exactly? What? You put on a show, right? You have to have the ability to, to present something else, right? So, are you re- so you're not revealing yourself, right? Right? Wrong. You are revealing yourself. What are you revealing? And let's think, that professional side comes from your values, right? Hopefully, ideally, right? Your sense of justice, right? Your sense of societal obligation, which arguably are deeper parts of you than the mood you're in today, right? So it actually is revealing, right? Not revealing your mood, but revealing kind of the kind of person you are, the values you possess, right? That this is a serious thing and that appreciation of, of the seriousness of it of the gravity of it, you're able to exude. So you're not really hiding, right? You're presenting something much deeper. Okay. Now we're gonna talk in, in, in the class on Rosh Hashanah about this idea of a king more in detail. So right now I'm just gonna do a very brief um, idea, which is that a king reveals himself by being unavailable. So, so back to that example I said, right? That, that counterintuitive idea, like if my mood is being obvious to everybody, right? I, seemingly I'm being revealed, but I'm actually, if I have the values that, of, of you know, the importance of justice and the seriousness of the situation, it's actually my mood is concealing a deeper part of myself and by, by bringing out that professional, I'm actually revealing that deeper part of myself. There is something kind of paradoxical about a king, which again, we'll elaborate in, in, in the next class, next two classes, that a king reveals himself by being unavailable. Which means when the king is in the palace and there's all this pageantry and there's all of these, these layers and obstacles between the person and the king, the king is actually revealing himself, right? The fact that I can't make an appointment with the king actually is a revelation of the king. And then when I get an appointment, that's, even, that's also a revelation of the king. But if I'm able to just casually go up to the king and say, like, how are you doing? And he says, great, how are you doing? The king is very available, but not very revealed. Okay. Does this make some kind of sense? No. Okay. Well, somebody's, somebody's shaking their head no. So I, I, I have now an excuse to do more talking. Okay. I don't understand how the king in the field is not. So, I have friends. I know. I was also shocked to discover this. Um, but I have friends. <laughs> and the thing about friends is that um, not everybody who you think is your friend is your friend. 
And not everybody you think is not your friend is not, is not your friend. Friends are people that you can call upon to help you and they want to be there for you and are not expecting to be repaid. That's a kind of good litmus test of friends. Okay, so do you have people in your life that, that, that even when it's inconvenient, even when it's hard, they, they really want to be there and, and help you whatever way they can. And they're not expecting to be compensated. It's not on condition that you'll do it for them later. I mean, you would do it for them later if you're their friend, right? But, but it's not, it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not bargaining. It's not, oh, I'll do it. It's not you're keeping score. Okay. Now, some of my friends I work with, and because friends, when you, when you realize that this person is like that with you and they realize that you're like that with them, there's a kind of an intimacy. There's a kind of a closeness. There's a kind of casualness. Not like a casualness like just like, you know, a random person that you meet on the airplane casualness. Like a, like a casualness comes because you're able to be open with each other. You're able to be vulnerable because you know the other person is going to be there for you. So you have, now if you work with such a person, I work as a teacher right, in yeshivas, right? So if you, if you do that, and you do that, you have that kind of a dynamic, you're not giving off the same kind of impression you are when you're coming in and teaching class and there's a, there's, there's a curriculum, there's a schedule, there's a, there's a sense of what's the goal, right? Things are much more structured. So what happens if you have, like, I have a friend, and we're, 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 we're they, and they come into class, this happens sometimes, where I'm teaching a class and the other teacher comes in because they need to check something, and he makes a comment, then I make a comment back, and we have like a two-minute back and forth little thing that's just between us. I'm, the students, they're actually seeing me much more for who I am as a person than they're seeing me in class when I'm teaching. Does that make sense? But am I really available to them then? (laughs) I mean, they're seeing it, right? Are they, uh, do they feel comfortable participating in that little back and forth? Do they really get what's going on? They can appreciate it maybe, right? It has an impact on them, right? On the other hand, when I'm teaching class, I prepare the class for them, right? Hopefully the class is at the right level, right? It's, 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 it's understandable on the one hand, but challenging on the other hand, right? It's, it's, so it's much more available, right? But that's because I am, I am trying to figure out how do I present things in a way that's on their terms rather than them seeing things that are really just part of my life. So now, because a king, and again, we're gonna have to kind of bracket the paradox of king, because a king, what it is to be a king, it entails a certain level of unavailability, of really just being aloof. And again, we'll talk about what that is. When the king makes himself available for casual interaction, for a hello, how are you? That quality of the king being remote and aloof is not being felt by the people. So it's not being revealed. But he's very but he's, he's available, they're interacting with him, right? They, they, how are you doing? Oh, how's the weather? And like, you know, local sports teammate. Like, you, you, can, you can schmooze about these types of things, right? There's a, in other words, 
the, the conceptual reason why sometimes this is a difficult thing is because we very often think of revelation in terms of the recipient. Am I getting something? But that's why I started. Revelation is how is the thing presented? If I have this very close relationship with a teacher and when we interact, there's professionalism, I'm not being revealed, they're not being revealed. Because the, 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 the truth inside of me isn't coming out. Um, but when it does come out, it may be now all of a sudden the students feel like, okay, they're doing their thing and we don't really, we don't really get it, we're not really part of this, we're kind of being left out. They can see that happening. Um, and you have a similar thing, by the way, with, with parents and children. Um, as children grow up, my oldest is uh, 14, my youngest is two months, eight. Um, as they grow up, they start to become more and more aware that the parents are people and have a life that's independent of the fact that the parents of the children. And in a weird way, the parents are becoming more revealed. And so like, when, when the child like, gets a sense that like mommy and tati need like, to just like, you know, go out on a walk and get some ice cream together and just have time, just the two of them, when they get that, their parents are more revealed to them even though they're not, they're not really part of that equation. Whereas, you know, you're taking care of you know, a three-year-old, you're not really that revealed. You have to do a lot of like, okay, what does the three-year-old need? What does the three-year-old need? What does the three-year-old need, right? So if a king, a quality of a king is a certain kind of unavailability, again, which I'm not elaborating why that is and what that means, if the king is available, if the king is easy to walk up to and, and talk with and schmooze with, it, then who he is and what he's all about is not being revealed. And yet, he's very available. So I feel like, wow, I feel so close, I feel so connected, and, and there's truth to that. But what I'm close and connected to is this person who happens to be the king. But who he is as the king is not really so, it's not felt. But couldn't you also say that him going out into the field and being available is a quality that he's revealing? Like because he's doing that and he is a king, okay. therefore he is revealing. You could say that, which is why in Hasidus we differentiate between actions that are taken with purpose and intent where the intent may reflect us versus revelation. I'll explain to you what I mean. Um, My oldest son once broke his arm when he was two years old and it needed to be set. So I needed to hold him while the doctor set his arm. Have you ever seen an arm being set? It's, it's not pleasant. Okay, now, what was I doing? I was restraining a two-year-old so that a foreign person right, could manipulate his body in a way that causes extreme pain. That's what I was doing. Why was I doing it? So that his arm would heal. And why, was I, why, why did I want his arm to heal? Because I care about him, because I love him. So while the love might motivate that action, I would not say that the love was revealed there, right? I was not feeling the love exuding out of me. He was not feeling the love exuding out of me, right? In fact, it actually is very hard as a parent because you really have to kind of, the feelings keep them inside, right? So you're, there's a difference between doing something and kind of exuding something. The, the, and, and, one creates a feel and atmosphere. So you're right. It could be the fact that the king is there ultimately ties back to who he is and has a purpose. 
But the experience of being around the king and schmoozing and chatting with him doesn't reveal his kingship. Maybe if you're deep and wise, we understand that maybe there's a purpose there. But that's not the same thing as revelation. Revelation is much more experiential and it's much more... Um, I don't want to say automatic because automatic is not the right word. But it, but it, but it, but it's much, it's much less of something that you're doing and much more a way of being. Okay. I'll give you even the same action could be one or the other. Okay, your kid falls, and you realize they need a hug. So you go over and hug them because they need a hug. What are you doing? You're doing an action. You see your kid, and they look just so perfect and they touch you and you're overcome with this positive feeling, right? And you go over and hug them. What are you doing? You're not doing, you're not doing anything. The, the, the place you are emotionally is just coming over and almost takes over. Your, it's a different type of a thing. And the feeling is different. Whether the kid can feel whether they're being hugged because you know you're trying to accomplish something, trying to comfort them. It's an action with a purpose or it's a revelation of the state of being you're in. It's in a very important distinction and it, it, it comes throughout Hasidus, this distinction. Can you say that one more time, action with purpose? Action with purpose versus revealing, which more is revealing the state of being or the kind of being you are. So getting back, getting back to the, the thing. So the king's in the field. Okay. Why is he there? He's there to give people the opportunity to greet him. And how does he respond to being greeted? this positivity with this warmth. So the idea is that God's compassion for us is not coming with all of the grandeur and all of the awesomeness of divine compassion, which is overwhelming. Rather, it's coming with, it, it, it's coming, it's, it's, it's there and it's available without revealing itself. And the idea is like this. We have the responsibility to make God the kind of the central focus of our life. That's what Elul is about. I'm going to make God the central focus of my life. That's, that, that's the way it should be. And deep down, that's, that's being true to myself. And I have to take responsibility for that. And the more we reflect on that, the more we realize that's a heavy task. And that's a challenging task. Especially considering the life I live is not a godly life. Because I, I, I have a mortgage and I have diapers and I have work and I have exams. I don't actually have exams, right? but people do, right? And even the Judaism, a lot of it, I don't necessarily relate to it in its godly way. You relate to it as just habit or technical or this. It's a, it's a very big demand to, ch to take responsibility for that and try and start changing that. And I'm going to ask you a very simple question. Think about it. Is it easier to take responsibility when you feel that you have to carry the burden alone, or is it easier to take responsibility when you know that someone is there to share the burden with you? Think about that. I'm gonna twist the question slightly in a second. You have the answer? This should be obvious, right? Okay. Now, how does someone share the burden? I'm taking responsibility. It doesn't mean that I'm gonna take responsibility, but I know someone else is gonna share the burden. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to, like, my kitchen is an absolute disaster. I mean, maybe it's not by now, right? Long story, 
a lot of kids, very busy. Um, I was gonna clean up the kitchen yesterday. It didn't get to it. Um, I was gonna clean up the kitchen this morning. Um, I didn't get to it. So I, I, I told my wife, I get home, I'll, I'll clean up the kitchen, right? But my wife is thinking, you know, like I, I, she also wanted to clean up the kitchen, right? So we're both taking responsibility, but, but I know at the end of the day, if I don't do it, she'll do it. So is that really like her, like, I'm not taking the response, I'm taking full responsibility, but she's also helping carry the responsibility. It's not also helping. It's like, what ends up happening is like, I, I know that I should do it and she knows that she should do it and one of us eventually will do it, but we both know that if we don't do it, the other one will do it. So it's kind of like, none of us are taking full responsibility for it, right? So like on a practical level, like you can't have someone else share the responsibility. That's the way, like in an organization, in a marriage and in anything, for things to flip up through the cracks. Yeah. One of us will take care of it, right? So if I don't do it, you'll do it. If you don't do it, I'll do it. In the end, right, you see that? Mm-hmm. So what does it mean someone else share, if someone else is, 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 is helping you carry the responsibility? If it's not, they're going to do it for you if you don't get to doing it, because then that means that you're not really taking full responsibility. Where's an example you take full responsibility, but you're not alone? I would say it's like when you make an action, but the people around you kind of feel that impact. So like, for example, I came here, I took that responsibility, but my mom is sad because I left home. So it's kind of like a shared like, burden in the end, but it's a solo responsibility. Right, right. In other words, when, 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 when somebody else is emotionally engaged with your responsibility, that's, a, that, that, that's exactly the answer, right? I took on a responsibility. Okay, does that mean anything to anybody else? If it just means something to me, I carry that burden alone. Mm-hmm. If it means something to other people, then I don't carry that burden alone. That means there are other people involved. Now, maybe sometimes that's positive, sometimes that's negative. Sometimes it means that they're making the burden heavier, right? Depends on their reaction, right? But it's not, I'm not alone. If you're on a desert island and you decide, right, I am going to survive, because it's important for me to survive, you carry that burden alone, right? But if you're on a desert island, you say, I'm going to survive because I know my children, my spouse are waiting for me and I'll be rescued and it means something for them, for, to me that I come back to them, right? And you know that if they could see you, they would, right? then you don't feel like you're carrying that burden alone. Right? All the more so if they're able to like, you know, give you messages, right? But if, if, if the actual thing that I'm doing is saying, well, if I don't do it, they'll take, pick it up, that's not... That's not them sharing the burden of responsibility. That's just taking away some of the responsibility, which, you know, maybe is an appropriate thing to do sometimes, right? Isn't that where intent comes within responsibility? Right. right. And by the way, you know, like, you know, like in any good relationship, there are times where one person steps in and takes responsibility away from the other because that's what people do for each other, right? And same thing with us and Hashem, right? On Pesach, Hashem steps in and says, oh, look, let me handle this, okay? This is beyond you. I can deal with this, Right? And on um, El time, Hashem says, okay, you know what? I, I, I'm gonna, it's your responsibility, but the king is in the field, meaning I am going to be available. And, and if you, and what, what that means is you should know, I really value you taking this responsibility. I, every little step, you just going to come, right, going to greet the king, you taking seriously the notion that I need to take this responsibility on myself, that enough resonates with me. That is something that I view positively. 
there was one time a, a student who was in a special, who was not in a special ed class. He should have been in a special. He wasn't in a special ed class, and um, he he did horrible. So the next year, he gets a new teacher, and he comes home smiling, and his his um, his father says, "Why are you smiling about what's so what happened?" He says, "You won't believe it. I got a hundred on my Gemara test. For some reason, we have little kids learn Gemara. Um, that's like imagining teaching like." Um, Ten-year-olds, um, like first-year law school stuff, but that—that's what we do. Judaism—it's weird, but we do it. Um, right. My ten-year-old right now—he's learning about um, torts regarding negligence in terms of um, when you're watching your animals, or you give someone else to watch your animals, or someone steals the animals and they return them and they do damage, and how do you calculate damage? And yeah, that's that's what we do for ten-year-olds. Anyway, but um, he's the kid. Kid, they got a hundred, and the father's very amazing. He knows his kid. His kid's not. Uh... So he take, looks at the test, and he goes over the test, and every single answer is wrong. <laughs> not a single correct answer, and every answer is marked correct. So he doesn't know what's wrong with his new teacher. So he calls up the teacher, not in front of his kid, obviously. He says, "What's going on? You gave my kid a, a, a correct on every single answer." He says, "Yeah, but every answer was wrong." He says, "No, it wasn't." What do you mean? He says, you mark the test based on what you're grading, right? He says, yeah, okay. So, and the grading is based on the education, right? You're you're trying to evaluate the success of the educational activity, right? So the the child, right, or whoever you're educating, their starts here, and you're trying to bring them there, but it doesn't have one job, so there's a bunch of steps along the way, and then you do tests and quizzes to evaluate, both for yourself and for them, to see, like, how it's going, Right? That, that, that's what you're supposed to like, that's what education that works okay so I get a student who in his mind taking a test on Gemara is something that does not relate to him at all it is something for other kids because he has learned that this is something that doesn't pertain to him remotely so therefore my first educational task is that no this is pertinent to you so therefore, I'm grading him on whether he takes the test and tries to answer the question. If he takes the test and tries to answer the question, I have succeeded in educating him on that point. And if not, then that's a failure. And so every single test, we got to a point where he was willing to take the test and he was willing to write down an answer for every single question sincerely. And so every test, every single answer was correct. I wasn't grading him on the content of the answer. I wasn't educating him whether the content was correct. Now, will I eventually? Yes, I will, right? But... And how did that how did that student feel? He got a hundred, right? Now, if that hundred has been given on the, it, it had to be that the, the teacher exuded that approval, right? Mm-hmm. And actually, even before that, this, the teacher has to like, okay, I am, I am going to be there for this student. That all they need from me now is to educate them that Gemara is something that relates to them, and doing the work. And being tested is something that it relates to them. It's something that's part of their life. Like in everything else, I'm not going to exude that there's anything beyond that point. And then when they make, when they say, when, when they say, oh, I, he's right. This is something. And he invests himself. I'm going to show how much that means to me. How positive I feel about that. And in doing so, that child doesn't carry the burden of figuring out how to take learning Gemara, which is an important part of being 
a, a, a Jewish boy seriously. He doesn't have, he doesn't carry that burden alone. At the end of the day, though, I mean, he does have to do the work, right? Nobody's going to do the work for him. So God comes along and says, I, my compassion for you, it's not going to go and cleanse your sins. It's not going to be this awesome thing. I, my compassion for you is that I am here in your life with, a, with that ready to show you how much every small step of taking that responsibility means to me. And when you do the slightest thing to try to take on that responsibility, I, I will show you how much that means to me. And when you know that that's the dynamic that's happening, and you, more than most of you can feel that dynamic's happening, you don't feel like you're carrying that responsibility alone, even though no one's doing it for you. God's not swooping down and taking you out of Egypt. God's not mercifully wiping away your sins. God's simply saying, I, in other words, I believe that this is a responsibility you can take on. I am here alongside you in the life that you actually live with all of its complexity. And when you, in that life, try to take on that responsibility, to whatever degree you're doing that, but you're doing it with sincerity, that means the world to me. And I'm going to show you that it means the world to me. And that positive reinforcement enables us to throw ourselves into that responsibility more and it becomes hopefully a virtuous cycle throughout a whole month. And even a genuinely just considering whether I'm going to take responsibility is already the first step in taking responsibility. To actually wait, like, this is something I should do and it's hard. And on some level I don't want to do it, but I know I should. Like, even that is already a step towards taking responsibility. That's already something. That's already going to greet the king. But you're not contending with God and his absoluteness and his grandeur. You're not, you're, you, what you're doing is, is I am taking responsibility, but God is not waiting there far, far away from me saying, okay, you have to traverse this whole distance and then, and then you'll get my approval. No, he's there with you before the, he's not waiting at the end of the finish line. He's there before you even have the, 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 the starting line saying, I'm here. And when you make a genuine step, that means the world to me and I'm going to show, and I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to exude that to you. And that availability of Hashem is only in the month of Elul. We don't have that in the previous month in Av. And we don't get that in Tishrei. But that availability is not revealing Hashem. It's not giving us a sense of the grandeur and awesomeness of God. It's actually coming at the expense of that. And that's why there's no holiday. Like if you, if you make the choice to be oblivious, you can just live the whole month. Again, even as a religious Jew of month of Elul, just go through it. The month of Tishrei, you can't. The month of Tishrei, God says, I'm God. There's Rosh Hashanah. There's Yom Kippur. There's Sukkot. Contend. You know how much days you have to take off of work. Deal with it, right? But, but there is nothing like that in Elul. Okay. Yes. So the word responsibility, just so that I'm clear, <clears throat> it's like a parent of a child, right? If you haven't seen your child for a while and that you want them to come closer and you want to invite them in, but then as a child you might also have chores. Is that responsibility just the relationship or is it the relationship and then all the other chores that we know that as Jews we adhere to, right? In the month of the Lord. Okay, so... I want to finish the class on time and the last okay. point, the last point I actually wanted to address 
what I think touches on, on that. So I want to wait sure. to get the other question, and then I'm going to say the last point, and hopefully that will answer your question. Yes? Um, yeah, I was going to ask how you know that God's rewarding you. I'm going to answer you with an analogy, not elaborate. And if you want, you can use questions and answers time next week and tomorrow to ask it. It's a very general question when we all talk about chassidus because we're always going to be talking about this relationship with God and our soul and feeling God. And you're like, wait a minute, I don't, I don't experience any of this what we're talking about. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to give you an analogy. One thing that parents do usually is they go into their children's bedrooms when they are sleeping especially when they're very young. And they will often caress them or give them a kiss while they are sleeping. Do you think that that has a positive effect on the child? Okay. So does everything necessarily have to be like, oh, I experienced it right now? Or could it be that somehow there's now, again, if you want to ask more about this, that's fine. But, but on a very basic level, I am not saying that, oh, I now experience God's approval in any sort of conscious way. But that thing that is being shown to me somehow does give me some kind of a thing that ultimately cashes out in more of a optimism, a more of a conviction, a more of a sense of personal ability to take on that responsibility. And it becomes a virtuous cycle, even if I'm only experiencing one side of it, which is the taking on more and more responsibility from a positive place. And I'm not conscious of it. But, and again, if you want to ask tomorrow about that, I don't mind elaborating more. Okay, so now here's the thing. If you're taking responsibility for something, there's, there's two elements to responsibility, um, which is what we're gonna call the general and the particular. Let's use the example of um, having an infant. Do you take responsibility, if you have an infant, you take responsibility for that infant, what does that mean? Well, there's a general thing, which that means I'm taking responsibility that this infant is gonna grow in a environment that is good for the infant, physically, spiritually, emotionally, right? I'm going to take that response, right? The care for the infant, right? But you can't leave it at that, right? What it actually means, it means, let's say if you're a nursing mother, it means that you are making a decision to get two plus hours of sleep at, at a time for the next few weeks, months. Because nursing for an infant is about every three to four hours, depending and that means you have to be awake. And that means you're not sleeping. So you sleep in little shifts. That's what it means, right? Now, those are not the same thing, right? One is a very general sense of commitment. The other, but the thing is, one cashes out in the other. And this also it entails an element of being realistic. What if, and this is why I'm using the example of nursing, what if, and we, Baruch Hashem, we live in a world where we have options. Um, so, what if... Um, for whatever, it, it's not realistic for a woman to nurse the baby as the sole thing, right? What if, what if this woman really, she does need, you know, she does need a chunk of six hours of uninterrupted sleep. Really, like she really does. Does that mean she doesn't care about her child? No. 
right? It's about if you, so, okay, so maybe she gives formula for one feeding, right? Back in the old day, in such situations, there was wet nurses. But like, it me when you take the general responsibility serious, not just you have to, you, it, it, it goes along with the particulars. It also means though you have to treat those particulars in a realistic way. Someone who treats the particulars in an unrealistic way is an indication they haven't taken the general responsibility seriously. If you're, it becomes more about a sense of perfectionism. How can I tell that I am really taking my responsibility to God seriously? Is that I am going to be particular about things in my relationship with God that are realistic for me to be particular about? Not easy, but realistic. Because if I try to be do things that are not realistic, well, that's set up to fail. And, and, and doing something that you, on the back of your mind, know is going to fail is the most irresponsible thing a person could do. Which means, and I will get to the suggestion, it's very important, whatever changes you want to make in Elul, to have both of those elements. A general, what is this all about? What is kind of the holistic change I want to make? But if I'm really serious about it, it has to mean something realistic. And the realistic thing is always going to be much smaller, much more humbling than the big thing. And whether you take it to this point of, you know, Hashem is the core thing of my life. My life all revolves around this relationship with God and nothing else. Or it's just, you know, it's like, I'm just going to work on, on keeping kosher. But like, even keeping kosher might be like unrealistic for a person to start with. And they need to be like, you know, I'm going to start with like, you know, at home. Having, uh, making sure that I, I, I separate my meat and dairy, or I don't know, something like that, practically. Okay? But responsibility has those two elements. There's a corn of core. Who am I responsible to? What is it about? But if I'm really responsible, then it has to mean something concrete that's realistic. And the realistic thing always will be less than the ideal. And so in taking on responsibility, there's a deep humility that has to go along with it. And if you start finding yourself, as I suggest, you start finding yourself making this like, I'm gonna change this and 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 you're gonna like, you're gonna look like that perfect, picture perfect, that's not taking responsibility. That's engaging in, 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 in self-grandeur and fantasizing. And it's not, it's definitely, it's certainly not Elul. Okay. So that's a, a very brief description of some of the Hasidic ideas in Elul, okay? Um, you'll notice that we mentioned Hashem being a king, right? I didn't elaborate on that. Rosh Hashanah is about crowning Hashem king. Um, kingship is a very hard idea for modern people to deal with and we're going to devote two classes to what does it mean that Hashem is king, what does it mean to crown him king, and really how that sets the stage really for the rest of the festivals of Tishrei but we are not in a place to crown Hashem king if we have not taken this responsibility on ourselves in Elul 